We're reading from the Gospel of John, John chapter 5, and reading the first 18 verses. And then uh, Gavin's going to bring us God's message from that passage afterwards. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there was in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethsaida, uh, which is surrounded by uh, five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralysed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick, up, pick it up and walk? The man who was healed said he had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath. The Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. May God bless that reading to us. Well, good morning, and uh, if you're visiting here today, uh, I'm not the pastor, so uh, if you take offence or umbrage with anything I say, don't worry, uh, everything will be restored to normal next week. Um, so, uh, uh, my name's Gavin, did I say that already? Yes. Um, about uh, nine and a half years ago or so, um, I got married to the lovely Ebony, who's sitting here in the second row. And uh, when we got married, we uh, used traditional vows, of which one vow was for better or worse. And uh, little did I know that uh, that vow would come in handy on several occasions, because married life is not always better, uh, which may come as a surprise to some of the younger ones among us, but probably not to the elder, elder ones among us. And um, that, that vow is uh, very important because, of course, when times are tough, you need to have a foundation and a commitment to continue even when things are worse. Uh, for example, as uh, you can imagine, I eat a lot better uh, than I used to when I was single and um, we, uh, I'm less lonely, I have someone to talk to and... Um, I have someone to remind me to drink water when I'm getting dehydrated. All these things are a lot better. 
But on the other hand, I surf a lot less and argue a lot more than I did as a single person. And uh, you have to take the rough with the smooth, don't you? These days it seems like people are more keen to vow for better or else when they get married. And uh, if it doesn't turn out better, then each goes their own direction. Uh, in our story, we meet a man who um, benefited enormously from Jesus, incredibly, and then immediately betrayed him when it wasn't better, as, as, bet, as good as he, as he hoped anyway. Well, I don't know what he hoped, but anyway, he, he benefited enormously, enormously from Jesus and then proceeded to immediately betray him. The question is, how could someone do that? As we see, he was an invalid for 38 years, healed in a flash, and then in the same day, betrayed Jesus to the Pharisees who began to persecute and plot to kill Jesus. Well, I hope today as we explore this story, we may approach an understanding of how someone could do that and draw some lessons from it. So um, we're in John's Gospel, and as a bit of background, um, John has written his Gospel, he says in chapter 20, in order that we who read it would believe. He says there are many other signs that Jesus has done. This is in chapter 20, verse 32, and he says, but these are written so that you may believe, and that by believing you may have life in Jesus' name. Uh, and John records a few signs of which this is number three in his Gospel. Um, but he often presents examples of belief and unbelief and kind of toys with what it is that drives people to either belief or unbelief. It, for example, in John chapter 3, verse 19, he says, This is the verdict, light has come into the world, but men love darkness because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So he explores the reasons and the motivations that people refuse to believe. And one of those is the fear of the light and being exposed by the light. Well, in our story, we have this man who's received a miraculous instant healing after a lifetime of affliction and yet betrayed Jesus. So the question is why? And uh, let's dig into it. So um, I've got a couple of points today. The first one is Jesus will upturn your life for better. Second will be Jesus will upturn your life for worse, better or worse. And finally, is it worth it? So Jesus will upturn your life for better. Let's have a look at what happened to this man when he encountered Jesus. His situation is terrible, isn't it? He's been lying at this pool called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five colored colonnades. And a great number of disabled people used to lie there. It reminds me of a Vietnamese hospital. If you ever go to Vietnamese hospitals, the people are not in beds. They're just strewn all over the hallways, on the floor, hanging off the ceiling. No, not the ceiling, but it's, it's a terrible situation. And this is what it looks like here. All kinds of disabled, blind, maimed people lying there waiting for the waters to move, which is some kind of therapeutic spa, I'm, I'm guessing. And the first one in um, got better. Now, he'd been like that in that condition for 38 years which is near the life expectancy for someone in Jesus time so his life was nearly over really not much left to go and the irony is that his disability prevents him from ever being able to get 
into the pool to be healed. He's an invalid, so he can't run. And he says, no one here is willing to help me. Everyone else jumps in before him and he's left lying at the back. Now, there's a very strange question that Jesus asks him when Jesus finds him and learns that he's been in this condition for 38 years. He asks him a question which, to me, seems to have a obvious, an obvious answer. Do you want to get well? Uh, isn't the question... Isn't the answer to that question always going to be yes? Well, you'd think so, but his answer is a bit strange. He says, uh, well, um, uh, sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. So he's kind of resigned to his condition. If you like, he's given up hope. He's still sitting there at the pool, but he's long since given up hope that he'll ever be healed. And rather than just saying yes, he reaches for that excuse, I suppose, or that comforting fact that no one here is going to help me. <clears throat> now, Jesus doesn't take his answer as a no, he just heals him. And this is one of those great random acts of kindness, as we call them, Jesus just chose this man and with a word instantly heals him. Says, get up, take your mat and walk. And instantly the man is healed. After being healed, he picks up his mat and walks. And no doubt he had always, for 38 years, had someone carry him to the pool. And now he's carrying his mat out. It's a picture of total transformation from dependence to independence from infirmity to ability, from passivity to activity. His life has been utterly and totally transformed for the better. I did some travelling and um, I had to buy a train ticket once in uh, Mumbai, in India. And I discovered they have a different queuing system in Mumbai. They basically had five windows selling tickets and then a sea of people surging towards the windows. And it was a kind of a living experiment or a living version of a survival of the fittest. Basically, if you pushed harder than anyone else, you would eventually get to the ticket. And I was so angry and frustrated, I started peeling people off who were coming in from the sides like a rugby match. You know, you can't come attacking, peeling them off and saying, get to the back of the queue. And the Indians were like, what is this crazy guy doing? That's their queuing system. But I, it just infuriated me uh, so much. And I, I was only there for 20 minutes. Imagine being in that scenario for 38 years, not waiting for a train ticket, but waiting for healing, and people just piling in and snatching it from under your nose. After year after year, week after week, month after month, for 38 years. Well, if anyone had come up to me in the queue and said, would you like a free ticket right here, right now? I would have been overjoyed and said, yes! I would not have said, you don't understand, I'm at the back of the queue. All these people are coming in here, I'm never going to get my ticket. But that's what he said. So let me ask you the same question. You've got scars, as I do. You've got wounds. You've got reasons to complain. Would you like to be healed? Jesus will do that now for you. 
immediately. He will transform and upturn your life for the better in an instant. Or is it more comfortable to be a victim? These days with woke culture, victim mentality is everywhere and very popular. Everyone has got a scar, everyone's got a reason to blame somebody else for all the problems in their life. And if you look at woke culture, it's essentially just a great hierarchy of victimhood. And uh, there are many categories that you can claim, everyone except except me, if you're single white male Protestant, then you've got no categories. Uh, you're at the bottom of the, of the victim hierarchy. But the people at the, at, you know, along the way, there are Jews, Palestinians, immigrants, blacks, females, transgender, gay, lesbian, all of those categories afford you victim status. Now, victim status is very convenient because it's the shortcut to moral purity. I can just declare that all of the things wrong in my life are your fault. It's a very tempting way of thinking. And they even have a thing called cross-sectionality now where you can claim multiple categories. And the ultimate victim, I I suppose, would be a black lesbian migrant, uh, Muslim transgender female. No, that doesn't work, does it? But anyway... (laughs) That would be the ultimate victim. If you were in that category, you would not have to think about any uh, moral questions in your life whatsoever. You can just claim victim status. But you know what Jesus does with victims? He heals them. No more victim status. No more victimhood. Because you're healed. You've got nothing to cling to as a moral excuse anymore. You're free. You're washed, you're clean, you're healed. Some of us may be here today with a lot of scars and year after year we feel the weight of those scars and they have become to define us. Don't you know how hard it is for me? Well, today Jesus heals you. Let go of all the pain. You're no longer a victim. Now you're free. Jesus will upturn your life for better. But Jesus will also upturn your life for worse. Worse, I mean, of course, in terms of this short span of our life. I don't mean in an eternal sense worse. But yeah, in this short time, it's going to be tricky. And in some objective sense, worse. So this man, the impact of the Jesus upon this man was that immediately he was brought into conflict. Conflict with religious leaders and conflict with himself. So conflict with the religious leaders, he starts carrying his mat and the day when he is doing this is the Sabbath. And uh, you'll see in verse 9, the day in which this took place was the Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders said to the, the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. So for the first time in his life, he's in trouble with the Jewish leaders, I guess. And the reason is, they say, that he's breaking the Jewish law by carrying his mat. Now, just for the sake of clarity, he's not breaking the Jewish law. The Jewish law of Moses forbade people to work on the Sabbath, and his work was begging. Now, he's not begging. He's going to the temple with his mat under his, under his arm. So he's definitely not. This is the first day in 38 years that he has not worked, and yet they're accusing him of breaking 
the Sabbath. And the, the law of the Sabbath was that you set aside your regular occupation to worship God and gather with his people. And that's exactly what he was doing on his way to the temple. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but in Israel to this day, they have Sabbath elevators. So you can switch the elevator to Sabbath mode and the elevator will stop at every floor to save you the work of pushing the button. Um, The elevator, of course, is working very hard. And some Jews object to that. They say, no, I want to take the stairs because I don't want the elevator to work very hard. And the irony of that is the stairs are much harder work than the elevator. (laughs) Such is the kind of chaos when you take God's law and try to build a whole network, a whole series of jurisprudence, sub-commands and laws around it to make sure that you don't break the law of God, but forget what the law of God was all about. The Sabbath law was a, a delight to the Jews to say, have a rest, gather with me, and let's enjoy our relationship together. But they turned it into a legal nightmare. And this guy falls into that trap. Um, rather than arguing with them, he actually just blames Jesus. He says, it's not my fault. The guy who healed me told me to do this. So it does appear that he's still clinging to his victim mentality. It's not my fault, it's his fault. He doesn't know who Jesus is yet, but he knows it's not my fault. It's that guy's fault who told me to carry his mat. Even the very first thing that he does as a healed man is point the finger at Jesus. Anyway, he came into conflict with the, uh, the Jewish leaders. But then Jesus calls him, he meets him in the, in the temple, um, in uh, verse 14 and Jesus says again something very surprising to him he says see you are well stop sinning or something worse may happen to you now there's two two reasons I think that is so surprising first of all how could could he have been sinning he's just been lying on his mat for 38 years doing nothing and Jesus yet says to him stop sinning well that tells us something about sin, which we'll come to in a second. But the second thing that he says is, well, something worse may happen to you. Now, what could possibly be worse than lying on your mat, on your mat for 38 years? Well, it can only be that if he doesn't repent of his sins, he will fall into the judgment of God. What does it tell us about sin, that he's been lying on a mat doing nothing and yet sinning? Well, it tells us that sin is a matter of the heart more than it is a matter of actions. Just as much as sin can, can, uh, can be an action that you do, it can also be a thought, a secret desire, things that occur in secret in the soul. And Jesus says to him, you need to turn away from that. He calls him into conflict with his very self. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. I don't know if you've ever seen The Matrix. Um, It's one of my favourite movies. Um, And the main character, Neo, is trapped inside this giant computer network which is using him as a battery. And uh, the computer network has created a program to stimulate his brain and 
create the illusion that he's living in basically Sydney, if you've ever seen the movie, in 1994 or something. Um, and uh, so he thinks that he's living, eating, going to work and so on, but actually he's just a battery in this giant computer network. And he meets a guy called Morpheus who gives him a choice. Um, he says he can remain in the comfortable illusion of the matrix if he takes the blue pill or if he takes the red pill, he can know the truth and he will escape the matrix and Neo takes the red pill. Immediately after taking the red pill, he's rejected by the computer network machine and spat out into a sewer. And he discovers that real life is a lot less comfortable than the Matrix. He, he lives in this kind of dystopian world where humans live underground fighting the machines. And in the movie, there's a guy called Cypher who's one of the villains, and he's also escaped like Neo, but he hates his new life in the dystopian world which is real and he makes a deal with the Matrix to go back in and live as, yeah, as, as a battery again in the comfortable illusion of the Matrix. So he agrees to betray Neo, and in return they plug him, well, he was gonna be plugged, in, plugged back, back in, but he ended up dying. But anyway, the, the, the point of the story is there's a choice that both of these two men make. The truth, with all of the discomfort and displeasure and difficulty that comes with the truth, or the comfortable illusion of the matrix. And uh, make no mistake, friends, Jesus, following Jesus, knowing Jesus, comes with benefits and costs. And it's not the comfortable world of the matrix, or the illusion, the illusory life that people who don't know Jesus live bouncing around from one pleasure to the other. Jesus will bring you into conflict with the world around you. In fact, in another place in John's Gospel, Jesus says to his disciples, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. And uh, Jesus says, you will have trouble in this world, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So, uh, if you follow Jesus, you will live a life of conflict. Conflict with the world around, not that we wage war and go around actively seeking conflict, but the world will be in, con in conflict with us if we follow Jesus. And Jesus calls you and I into conflict with ourselves to constantly wage war against sin in the heart. I do note that Jesus says this to him while he's in the temple. So... Temple attendance is not a substitute for repentance. And church attendance is not a substitute for repentance. If you had sins out there, they are still with you now in the room. And Jesus calls us to repent of those. So finally, is it worth it? The question of whether the good stuff outweighs the bad stuff, I think is answered very simply with one question. Who is Jesus? This man has decided that it isn't worth it and he dobs Jesus in. The result is that Jesus is persecuted because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And Jesus' response to the Pharisees is in verse um, 17. He says, My father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working. Then in verse 18, they understand very correctly that Jesus was calling God his own father, making himself equal 
to God. So, of course, on the Sabbath, God doesn't stop working in the sense of being active or the entire universe would cease to exist in an instant. And Jesus, being the Son of God, does not, continue, does not stop working in the sense of being active on the Sabbath. The whole idea of, of the Sabbath, when God created the world in six days and then rested on the seventh, was that God set up an eternal rest, a rest of creation which is to be enjoyed by himself with us. It's not the ceasing of activity. And so Jesus, when he says, my father is working every day and so am I, draws a direct connection and equivalence between himself and God. So the degree to which we accept inconvenience, opposition, trouble, even persecution for Jesus' sake in this life is directly correlated to the knowledge that Jesus is God. If you have any doubt that Jesus is God, of course you won't suffer for him. But the conviction that Jesus and the Father are one means that any price is worth it to know him, be known by him, and be saved by him. Immediately after this section, Jesus will go on to tell the Jews that God has entrusted all judgment, all life, all creation, eternal life to Jesus. So your relationship to Jesus is the number one thing. That determines your relationship to God. And the conviction that Jesus is the Son of God, God the Son, is what determines your readiness to endure trouble in this life, along with the benefits of knowing him. About 32 years ago, um, I was not a Christian, but I remember very clearly sitting in my lounge room, looking at the Bible, which uh, someone had given me on the coffee table, and being filled with total terror, because I suddenly realised I'd been ignoring the Lord of the universe for 21 years at that stage of my life. And I was so terrified because I was in a position of not knowing his kindness and forgiveness at that stage. And so I decided then I better become a Christian because Jesus is Lord and King of the universe. Well, if you happen to have been living the same way as I was then, I hope that you will be filled with a bit of terror today in understanding that Jesus is the Son of God, the one to whom God has entrusted all judgment, all creation, all eternal life has been entrusted to him. And I hope you understand that whatever cost is associated with knowing and following Jesus is nothing compared to having him as your Lord and Saviour. Your eternal future, my eternal future, depends on one thing. Do we trust Jesus or not? You know, faith is not just kind of a wishful thinking. Well, I hope everything's going to be okay with me when I die. No, faith is the intellectual conviction that Jesus is Lord and the movement of the soul to trust him instead of yourself. That's what faith is. We know that Jesus is Lord and we move ourselves into a position of our souls, we, our souls gravitate to trust him instead of ourselves, for better or worse. 
He will heal us of every scar, wound, affliction, and all the foul things that are in our, in our souls will all be healed. And it comes with a price of being in conflict with the world around and being in conflict with ourselves. So I want to ask you the question that uh, Ebony and I asked each other. I don't want you to marry me, but I want you to think about this. Will you take Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, your lawfully wedded Lord and Saviour, for better or worse? 